Um, well, before we dive into this last seven verses in Micah's prophecy, uh, let's commit this time to God in prayer. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now in Micah, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that your word is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness, so that your servant may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father, we pray that you will give us ears to hear what you want us to hear tonight, and in hearing that your Holy Spirit will be doing a work in us to make us into better disciples and followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things for your kingdom and your glory, in your Son Jesus' name. Amen. So, yes, thank you, Mal, for your reading, and thank you, everybody, for this opportunity to come up and open God's Word with you and share a few thoughts with you tonight as we look into this last part in Micah's prophecy. Uh, as you may know, our Pastor John is on sabbatical in Scotland at the moment, and Johnny is currently at home looking after Joyce and the newborn son, so unfortunately you're stuck with me tonight as we finish uh, this sermon series in the book of Micah. Now, both John and Johnny have preached on different parts in this uh, sermon series and in Micah, and you can find their sermons on our church website. Uh, a few weeks ago, John actually preached on this very passage that we're looking at tonight during the morning service. So if you're looking for some continuity with your speakers, uh, feel free to check out John's talk uh, on our church website and see how the professionals handle it. <laughs> Having said that, I pray that you will find some encouragement with my amateur attempt at the sermon tonight as well. Let's, let's hope I don't set up any heresy bells. Um, so without further ado, let's jump in and see what the Bible has, has for us tonight in Micah chapter 7, verses 14 to 20. Now, I hope you still have that part of the Bible open in front of you. Now, as we come to this last seven verses of the book in Micah, we find that Micah here is not speaking to the people, but rather he is praying to God and asking God to go carry through with his promises and praising God and looking forward to what God's going to do. In verse 14, we see Micah praying to God, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago. Now, this is an interesting choice of words. Micah could have just as easily said, lead your people with your staff or guide your people, etc. But here, Micah is asking God to shepherd his people. The idea of God shepherding his people has come up before in Micah's prophecy, of course. All the way back in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, we read, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob, I will bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. And then in Micah chapter 5, in verse 2 and 4, But you, Bethlehem, Erapha, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. 
He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. So we have this idea of God shepherding his people, or a ruler that's like God shepherding his people mentioned previously in Micah's prophecy. And if you look at the Bible more broadly, you will see this shepherd motif come up throughout Israel's history. But in the book of Micah, we have a particular description of a shepherd figure who will be born in Bethlehem, whose origins are of old, who will shepherd God's people in the strength of the Lord, who will be a king that will pass through before his people as the Lord at their head. Now, in verse 14 of chapter 7, the passage that we're looking at tonight, Micah is praying, Amen, Lord. Shepherd your people as you have promised to do. Let your shepherd come and lead your people to good pasture. And Micah continues in verse 15 to 17. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouth and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. Micah here is referring back to the time when God brought his people out of Egypt, when they, where they were enslaved for a time. When God came, comes to shepherd his people, the nations will see God's great strength at work and be completely speechless and amazed by the power and glory that will be revealed when God carries his people to the pasture that he has prepared for his flock, just like what happened during the time of the Exodus. You may have even picked this idea up in the last verse we were reading back in chapter 5 when Micah is describing the shepherd king in verse 4, where it says, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. So Micah is praying, Yes, God, Amen. Let it be so, Lord. Come and shepherd your people and let the world see your sovereign might that will cause the nations to tremble and fall to their knees. Micah has so much hope and confidence in God and his bold prayer for God's kingdom is in itself an example for our own prayers. But wait a minute, let's take a step back and consider the context of when Micah was written. What was happening at the time when Micah wrote his prayer down at the end of chapter 7? Now, throughout his prophecy, if you remember back to the other chapters of Micah, two recurring themes that keeps popping up were the sinfulness of the people and the leaders and the punishment that God is going to bring on his people because of their sin and idolatry. In his book, Micah repeatedly calls out the idolatry that was rampant in Judah, at that time, in addition to worshipping God, the people of Judah were also worshipping the gods of the nations around them. They took up the pagan worship of created things rather than the true worship of the Creator, hoping that through these other gods, which are not gods at all, that somehow they will gain what they really want to feed their own self-centered desires. In our own context, we see similar things happening in our world. 
Sure, not many people on our street will likely set up a Baal or Asherah pole. Even though for many people around the world today, statues made of wood and metal and stone are still bowed down on a daily basis. No, in the West, our idolatry has generally been much more subtle, but equally dangerous, perhaps even more so because it's so well camouflaged. So many people we know today spend all their time and energy chasing after things that are not God and putting these things in the place of God as the most important thing to pursue in their life. Whether it's work or study or getting married or money or possessions or their looks or their family, popularity or power or pleasure, their health and fitness comfort and security, or simply their own sense of pride and self-satisfaction. People have become so focused on these things that God has blessed them with that they have totally forgotten the giver. And as people drift further and further away from a relationship with God in service of these lesser things, it becomes easier and easier to justify your decisions and actions, however foolish and sinful they may be, because you're less and less connected to the true source of wisdom and righteousness. Which leads to the next problem. Micah and his prophecy also have been pointing out every sin found in every layer of society. From Israel's leaders, to her priests, to the merchants, to a man's neighbors, to members of the same household, even between lovers, no one can be trusted because everyone is chasing after their own wants without regard for anything or anyone else. And Micah cries out, woe is me at the beginning of the chapter we're looking at tonight, or what misery is mine if you're reading from the NIV. As he looks out at the sin and corruption of the world around him, there's no one who does good, not even one. The most upright is worse than a thorn hedge, as Micah points out in verse 4 of the chapter we're looking at tonight. And maybe you know of instances where people in our time, in different levels of society, have used whatever means that was available to them to get what they want without regard for the human costs or the ethics involved. Notice we're not talking here about whether people are breaking the law or not, but rather whether their actions measure up to God's standard of good. Whether you're thinking about business ethics in the marketplace or personal ethics in relationships, maybe among family members, I'm sure you can think of examples where you know because of idolatry and self-centeredness, true justice is perverted and people are being hurt and mistreated. What Michael was prophesying against in his day is equally relevant and real in our day. And what happens when the people hear about Michael's prophecy? They tell them to be quiet. And this really shouldn't surprise us either because since it happens in our days as well, really, as people are confronted with the damage they're causing or have caused to themselves and others, the most natural response is to deflect or somehow justify themselves or try to silence that challenge or simply ignore it and you know, pretend everything is fine. And that's what the people in Micah's day did. They've drifted so far from God that somehow they've managed to delude themselves into thinking that God can't be angry at them and that he's okay for them to keep doing what they're doing and God will continue to bless them 
They are the people of God after all, and how can they be wrong when everything feels so right? In Micah chapter 6, we see God's people are found guilty of breaking the covenant with God. God has shown them the standard of what is good, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with Him. But the people instead will go on to defraud each other. They're bent on violence, and they have run after the idols and away from God and His righteous requirements. But whether the people acknowledge Micah's message or not, God is holy and just, and He will not let the people's sin go unpunished. The result is that God is going to hand Israel over the war and destruction at the hands of a foreign superpower. Everything they have built and saved up for themselves will be devoured by the sword. They will eat but not be full. They will press olives and grape but not use the oil or enjoy the wine because they will be taken away. And finally, they themselves will be sent into exile away from God and the land that God has promised to their fathers. Now, for us living in the suburbs in Sydney today, an invasion by a foreign country where we're defeated and our citizens are captured and enslaved is pretty unlikely. But that doesn't mean that we're immune from the consequences of idolatry and sin. It just takes on a more subtle form, just like our idols. Many people today plot and scheme to get more, but they never have enough. And even when they have everything they want, they still can't find satisfaction in what they've earned. People are feeling more alone and isolated than ever before. They're trapped in all kinds of addiction and unhealthy relationships and destructive behaviors with little hopes of escape. Spiritually exiled from God and forever chasing that next thing that will surely make that pain go away, only to find that it's a lie. And as in Micah's day, sin and idolatry continues to destroy lives and bring misery to everyone it touches. Now for Micah, the sin and idolatry he faced in his day was leading to the invasion and defeat of his country where the people would be taken away from their land and those that remain in the land will live under the yoke of a foreign power. And that's when he writes his prayer at the end of his book, his bold and confident and hopeful prayer. So what inspires Micah's prayer in verses 14 to 17? Well, verse 18 to 20. Who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us, you will treat us, tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. The unfailing, faithful, forever love of God, that's what inspires Micah's confident and hopeful prayer. Of course, Michael is aware of the current situation, but he's also aware of God. He knows God's promises to his people, and even if he doesn't understand how God is both going to judge his people for their sins and forgive his people's sins and deliver them from death, he knows that God is faithful to his word and he will rescue his people as he has done in the past like he did during the Exodus. 
Notice it's not because of some innate goodness in the people or something that they will do or become that will somehow appease God and cause God to turn his wrath away from them. Micah instead is counting on the faithfulness of God to his word that he pledged on oath to Abraham long ago. Only God's faithfulness and his grace, not anything else that man can do or become, is able to bring salvation. But how would that be? It was a mystery in Micah of how God would accomplish this. How would God, who is holy and righteous, who cannot stand sin and let it go and punish, how could he pardon and forgive the sins of his people when they clearly deserve utter destruction? How does God's justice and righteousness work with his compassion and mercy? The answer to this mystery is found in the shepherd king that Micah mentioned in his prophecy. It was not immediately obvious in Micah's day or for the next 700 years after Micah and for many, sadly, even today. But around 700 years after Micah, the shepherd king in Micah's prophecy, born in Bethlehem, whose origins are of old, came to save his people from their sins. Not that Micah knew anything about this. Faced with the sin and the downfall of his world, Micah puts his faith in God and prays confidently despite not knowing exactly how God is going to solve the problem. Micah simply holds on to the fact that God was powerful and faithful to his word and he has promised to rescue his people as he has done in the past. Micah pins his hope on God that he will continue to be true to his character and will bring about what he has promised for his people. And when Jesus came, he said in John chapter 10, verse 14 to 16, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know my Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Isaiah who was a contemporary of Micah, wrote in his prophecy in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own ways, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or as Paul puts it, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At that great exchange on the cross, Jesus, who was himself God, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that in him we may have a righteousness that can only come from God. Taking our sin unto himself, he took the punishment we deserve and laid down his life for his sheep as the good shepherd. For us who are on this side of the resurrection of Christ, we know so much more than Micah did. We have seen how God has reconciled his justice and his mercy at the cross. As God poured out his holy, righteous wrath on Jesus who bore our sins on the cross, we have seen how our sin, as Micah puts it, has been hurled into the depths of the sea and pardon was made freely available to anyone who will 
put their faith in the shepherd king. We know that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. And the promise that God has given to Israel's forefather, Abraham, extends to us as we are now brought into God's flock, his people. Knowing so much more now than Micah did then, how much more confident can we be when we pray compared to Micah as we align our hopes with what God is going to do for us and our world? The promise that God made in Micah applies to us if we are a follower of Jesus Christ. Our shepherd king will go ahead of us and will lead us to pasture as the enemies of God's people, the nations and the powers that seek to overthrow God's purposes and his people are brought to true justice. We too pray and wait along with Micah for that glorious day when the whole world will bow down and acknowledge that our God is God of all. Consider your situation. I don't pretend to know where you are in with your life circumstances at the moment. But do you know this shepherd king that Micah is talking about? Do you know that Jesus has taken all our sins and have carried them into the depths? He was raised alive again as proof that he was God's chosen Messiah. And he has promised to dwell with us by his Holy Spirit. And one day he will bring in a new heaven and a new earth to live with us forever. If you do not know this good shepherd king that Micah is talking about, I would encourage you to speak to someone you trust that knows, and, that knows Jesus and ask them to introduce him to you. If Jesus is your king, how are things going for you at the moment? Maybe things are easy for you right now and things are going well. Well, praise God for that if it is. And I want to encourage you to keep walking with him and to fix your eyes on an even brighter day in the future when we will be in his presence forever. Let's tell the world about him. Let's continue to work out this salvation that we have in Christ out into every part of our lives so that the world will know the universal reign of God through Christ as his spirit works through us. Or maybe like Micah, you're crying out, woe is me. Maybe you're in a hard place right now and there is sin and idolatry within and there's destruction and ruin without. Maybe you're stressed, maybe you're feeling trapped, maybe you're feeling defeated or maybe you're feeling alone. Maybe people are telling you to be quiet about your faith. Maybe you're just feeling the effects of living in a broken creation. As we contemplate our current situation and what lies ahead of us, Let's not lose sight of this, that God is sovereign and in control, and he will save his people and bring them to a place of complete and perfect peace. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 reminds us that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Remember, Jesus has already defeated our greatest enemies, sin and death. And one day, every knee will bow down and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In the meantime, he will continue to shepherd us because he has promised to do so in his word. 
So with this assurance for now and with this hope for the future, let's keep praying along with Micah that as we look forward to the day when the whole world will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and his people will dwell in safety and in peace in his kingdom. While we wait for that day, let's continue to put off our idols, to repent daily and to keep seeking to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly without God for his glory and his kingdom and for our joy. Amen.